Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I am Steve Johnson, and it is good to be with you as always as we continue moving through life at the breakneck speed of 60 seconds per minute. I'm getting ready to continue with our Genesis study. We have been in one particular passage for the last few episodes, and that is Genesis chapter 29, verses 19 through 34. So guess what we're going to start today? <laughs> we're going to start in Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. And I know I've already read this a couple of times, but I'm going to go ahead and read it again just as a refresher since we're going to be looking at this passage and a few others. Not, we're not staying here. We're going to a couple of other places as well. But I want to go ahead and read this so we can go ahead and get it established in our minds again and go ahead and read it. So again, it's Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And it says that this is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it and said, Why is this happening to me? And the Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, so they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Isaac, of course, means hairy, and Jacob means heel or deceiver. And I've, I've already went through that before, but since we're here again, I'll go ahead and, <clears throat> and mention that again. <coughs> Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born, meaning that 20 years had passed from the time that he had prayed for, or excuse me, 20 years had passed from the time he married Rebecca to until the time that they had their twins. So 20 years, I mean, it seems like no time at all, because it only takes us a minute to read this passage. But in that one minute it took me to read this, 20 years has passed. It's no short amount of time. Uh, I was still in high school 20 years ago, so <laughs> that's, it's been a while. I'm sure all of you can think back 20 years, and it's 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 been a it's been a spell. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Big problem there with favoritism, as I've said before. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of the red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. And I, look, I told you before, I looked up Edom on the map and found that it's in southwestern Jordan. So that will 
that comes into play when thinking about the destiny of these nations. And anytime you see something about the founder of a nation, it's important to see what God says about it, what the Bible says about it, and to trace that name throughout the Bible and throughout the rest of history to see how what the Bible predicts about these nations plays out in the modern day. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, I already read that. What am I doing? I'm on my verse 31 now. Edom means red. Okay, verse 31. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Now, I talked about this last time as well, so I won't spend too much time on it except to say that God had already said that the older son would serve the younger, so Jacob didn't have to do this. He's trying to get in his own way what God has already promised. It's the same thing that Abraham and Sarah did. And it's the same thing that Jacob is doing now. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau, showing his short-sightedness. What good is my birthright to me now? So he, he despised his birthright, the Bible later says, because he traded his long-term future for short-term right-now gain. But Jacob said, First, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn, to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. So, what do we observe about the birthright here as we <clears throat> as we look at this uh, passage? Hold on one second. Okay. We see the word birthright come up twice in this passage. First it says, Look, I'm dying of, st of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me? That's Genesis chapter 25, verse 32. So Esau is not... Um, we, we see that a birthright... One of the first things we notice is that a birthright typically went to almost always... You know, God kind of made the exception here when these two children were born. But... the birthright went to the firstborn son, the oldest. So, but Esau despised his birthright because he didn't care about that in the moment. All, all Esau cared about in the moment was the here and now. What can I get right now? I'll give up anything I have to give up in the future for present temporary gain. That's a weakness of Esau's character for sure. Jacob, on the other hand, is kind of the schemer. You know, the word Jacob not only means he, uh, heel, it also means deceiver. <clears throat> he's the he's the schemer. He's the one that's thinking long-term big picture, not short-term gain. He's thinking out way ahead. And so, so he's, he's wheeling and dealing here. He's like, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. And so Esau swore an oath. And so Jacob, who... I don't know if he was aware of God's promise that the older would serve the younger. I'm guessing he was. I don't know how you could overlook that in the process of time. But he's still trying to get, by human means, what God has already promised. He's still scheming and plotting and trying to get it his own way, rather than uh, trusting in the Lord and waiting on him. And so that's what we see about a birthright from these two passages. 
Now we're going to go over and we're going to read Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 through 16. And then we're, and we're going to learn more about Esau and about the birthright. Again, this is Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 through 16. Okay, it's Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 through 16. And it says here, uh, this is a call to listen to God. And it says, work at living in peace with everyone. Um, I am working on that. I'm, I'd like to think I'm a little better at it than I was maybe this time a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm working on living at peace with everyone, but not at the expense of you know, telling the truth and, and all that either. So, But work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. Now, what does that mean, to work at living a holy life? Well, first we're going to take a look at the the uh, Greek word for holy here, or holiness, as it's in other translations. Strong's G38, Hagiasmas. Hagiasmas. So that is Hagiasmas, is the Greek word for holy here. And it the outline of biblical usage says this is uh, means consecration or purification. The effect of consecration, the sanctification of heart and life, is what it says. And Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words um, says that this word holy, whether it was living a holy life, is uh, it means separation to God is the resultant state the conduct befitting those so separated so you separate yourself to God and then the resulting state of your life after doing so after you separated yourself to God is <clears throat> what it means to live a holy life is to be separated to God and the four other place not separated from God but be separated to God being separated for his purposes. And the four other places mentioned above. Sanctification is this, the state predetermined by God for believers. So God has predetermined. Now, he, notice it's not, God has not predetermined who's going to be saved and who isn't. That's not the true definition of predestination. There's some theological circles that teach that. But what God has predestined believers to is the kind of life that we are to live. He has predetermined ahead of time what a godly life is supposed to look like for believers. And that is the holy life that Hebrews 12, 14 is calling us into. When it says, work at living at peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. That's the predetermined life. That not that every event's been planned out ahead of time, but the but the character and the the qualities of life that 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 being a godly person represents, into which the grace into which in grace he calls them. So in grace, meaning he empowers us to live that lifestyle when we surrender to God. He not only saves us from our past and our sins, He also sanctifies us or makes us holy 
He makes us, he, he empowers us to live the life that he has predetermined that believers are supposed to live and in which they begin their Christian course and so pursue it. Hence they are called saints. That's what that's another thing that believers are called. I mean it basically means to set apart to God. So if we're gonna read this again, the New Living Translation, work at living at peace with everyone, and work at living a holy life that is a life that is set apart for God. For those who are not holy, meaning those who are not set apart for God, it says, will not see the Lord. Verse 14, I'll read that again. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. And God's empowerment to live separated for him. Look after each other so that none of us fails to receive. We can't earn the grace of God. This isn't, you know, look after each other so that you'll keep working really hard to earn God's grace. Well, if you're earning God's grace, it's not grace, it's not mercy, it's uh, wages. We're not talking about wages here. We're talking about grace. So look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. We can't do anything to earn it. All we can do is make ourselves available to receive it. And so look after each other to make sure that you don't fail to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you. So I guess we can make the connection there that one of the things that can make, that can make it to where we trip ourselves up and make us unable to receive the grace of God is bitterness. Remember Jesus said to forgive um, if you do not forgive another, God cannot forgive you. It's not that he doesn't want to. It's that you, your own root of bitterness makes it to where you are, where, where God cannot, because you are not making yourself available for it. You're holding on to things that you are not meant to hold on to. And it says in this verse that it corrupts many. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. So this corrupts many, and your own root of bitterness can corrupt others. I, I guess I could um, get out of this verse as well. Uh, and then verse 16, it says, Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau. So there's something from the Genesis passage that we're supposed to take away from this, is that Esau, the Bible says, was an immoral, godless person. And that goes to his short-sightedness. He was, remember, he was willing to despise his birthright, his long-term future for short-term right-now gain. That made him an immoral and godless person. That is a quality. That's a character quality of an immoral, godless person. They're all about right now. What can I get now? And they're not. They don't have an eternal perspective. They're not looking out for what God wants. They're looking out for themselves, the here and now. What can I get right now? How can I make myself feel safe right now or put myself in the best position right now? And nothing else matters but the right now and what can I get in this moment? And he traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal, Hebrews twelve sixteen says. So the rest of Scripture kind of looks on Esau from that point forward with disdain. And that kind of answers my uh, one of the, you know, what I was talking before about one of the questions of 
Did Esau really give up his birth? Uh, it sounds like early on when they were born that God had superseded the the whole idea of the firstborn son getting the birthright when he said the older will serve the younger. But the more I'm looking at this now, it's making me think that perhaps God was prophesying what Esau was going to do. He Maybe he wasn't overruling the standard of how things usually went as much as he, because he knows the end from the beginning and he knows the future, he was prophesying what was going to happen with Esau and Jacob based on what Esau did. That is a possibility as well that I did not consider when we first started looking at this particular passage a couple of episodes ago. Now, continuing on here in this precept study of Genesis 25, it says, from what... From what we have read in Genesis 25 and Hebrews 12, who does the birthright belong to? Well, based on these two chapters, these two passages, which was Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34, and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 16, looking at these, um, gosh, I don't know, I think 17 verses total, um, I would say that the birthright, maybe it did, despite when I said that God overruled him, how things were usually done, I might have been wrong about that. It might have been that it was something that Esau did have the power to give up, and God, again, seeing the end from the beginning, knew that Esau was going to do that, but he didn't violate his free will to make it happen. It was something that Esau chose. So who... Who does the birthright belong to? It belong the birthright always belongs to the firstborn son. The oldest male child gets the birthright. How significant was the birthright? It was very significant. And how do we know that? We don't know that based on how Esau treated it because Esau treated it like it was nothing. He was willing to give it up. He was willing to give up his entire life's identity, if you will, as the firstborn son of Isaac for bean soup, basically. And so we don't see the true value of the birthright by looking at Esau, by looking at Esau. And we don't see it by necessarily looking at Jacob either, because Jacob is just, you know, he, he's just trying to to I mean, he said he's looking at the big picture but he, he's, like I said, he's a bit of a schemer. And so we know the true value of the birthright by looking at this Hebrews passage. Because in Hebrews twelve sixteen it calls Esau immoral and godless. But the reason it calls him immoral and godless is because of what Esau did with his birthright. That is what tells me the true value of the birthright is that he was an immoral and godless person because he so quickly gave it up. And the Bible used that as a standard for helping to determine Esau's godlessness. Who valued it? Well, it's obvious that Jacob valued it because he, was will he saw the big picture again. He's looking out farther ahead and he valued the birthright. And we'll see that again later on in another way and that he's he's uh able to now again the way he goes about accomplishing these things first with the bean soup and then later on deceiving his father 
as we'll see later on here in Genesis. Uh, he doesn't go about getting the birthright the right way, but he do, but it does show you the value of it by the fact of what he's willing to do to get it. Who despised it? Well, that's obvious. Esau despised it. He was willing to trade the most valuable thing he had in his life for bean soup. And what did it mean to despise it? When it says that Esau despises his birthright? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34, which is where we were before. And let's look at that passage again and look up the Hebrew word for despise. Now, the traditional rendering of this, as I've said already, is that Esau despised his birthright, is what it says. Now, over here in the New Living Translation, which I've been reading from, it says that he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Basically means the same thing, but the wording is a little different. So what is this Hebrew word for showing contempt? Well... And what does it mean? Well, here it is right here. Hang on. Strong's H959. Baza. Baza. So the Hebrew word for showing contempt or for despise, depending on your translation, is baza. And it means to despise, hold in contempt, or to disdain. To despise, regard with contempt, to be despised, to be despicable, to be vile, worthless, or to cause to despise. So that's what it means to, dis to despise. Basically, he treated this most valuable thing that he had, his rights as the firstborn son, he treated it as worthless. He treated it as something you could wipe your butt with, basically. It meant nothing to him. All he cared about was the here and now, right at that moment, as I've been saying throughout this uh, episode. And so let's look at how Genesis draws a conclusion in 2534. And take this into consideration as we answer these, uh, these things. So, so let's look at verse 34. It says, Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then he got up and left. So think about this. In one momentary decision, he throws away everything that he could have had in his life. Because he's starving. After being out hunting game, he came in and he's starving. So bread and lentil stew. He, he It's kind of like, in a way, it's kind of like Judas who gave up the Son of God, the Messiah the perfect sinless son of God for 30 pieces of silver. The, the longest of long-term sacrifices. We're talking about eternity here for a very short-term gain. And he ended up feeling so bad about it that he ended up hanging himself in despair. Judas did. Now Esau ate the meal and he got up and left. Just uh, think about it. He, he's giving up the most valuable thing. He gets the meal. He gets that temporary satisfaction. Then he gets up and leaves. Showing contempt for his, rights, for, for his rights as the firstborn. How do you think Esau felt after he did that? 
after his belly's full and it's no longer um the hunger is no longer gnawing at him however deep the hunger was how how do you think he felt afterwards? Do you think he wished he could take it back? you think he wished he could vomit it up in exchange for getting his birthright back? Or, again, the book of Hebrews calls him godless and immoral. Did he even care? Did he just go, thanks, bro, and then get up and go on about his business because it didn't matter to him? At any point in his life, did he realize the gravity of his situation? I think we'll get an answer to that later on when we see what happens later with uh, Isaac and uh, Jacob and Esau. So now we're going to look up some more verses and observe them carefully. And we're going to see what we can learn about the firstborn and the birthright. And we're also going to note who the firstborn is if the texts tell us. And so we have several uh, passages to look up here. We actually, let me see, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten passages here. And then after we do that, we're going to summarize what we learned about the firstborn and the birthright. It will help us remember what we observed. And when, then when we finish that, um, when we finish that, we will be near the end of today's podcast. Let me see how we're doing uh we're at about 25 minutes here do i want to take the time to go through this now or not maybe i do um well again we're going to be focusing on well let's go ahead and do that we're going to focus on what the bible says about the firstborn and the birthright in all of these passages. So the first one we're going to look up is Genesis chapter 49 verses 3 and 4. And Genesis 35:22 tells when Reuben defiled his father's bed. So we're going to look at Genesis 35:22 and then 49:3 and 4. So that's what we're going to do. And here in Genesis 35 through 35:22 again it tells us how Reuben defiled his father's bed. When it says that while he was living there, Reuben had intercourse with Bilhah, his father's concubine, as Jacob's concubine, his father. And Jacob soon heard about it. And then in Genesis 49, 3 and 4, it says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. So later on when Jacob has children, Reuben is Jacob's firstborn. So Reuben has dishonored his father by sleeping with his father's concubine in his father's bed, defiling his bed. And the consequences of that are seen later on. It says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength, the child of my vigorous youth. You are first in rank and first in power. But, he says, you are as unruly as a flood, Jacob says. And you will be first no longer. For you went to bed with my wife, and you defiled my marriage couch. So, what we learn about the birthright in this passage is that it is possible to lose one's birthright. 
We see that with Esau and how he traded his birthright to Jacob for the temporary gain of some food. One meal. And then we see later on how Jacob's son, his firstborn Reuben, who was to be who was to get the inheritance from Jacob, traded his birthright for, I guess, a night with his father's wife <laughs> or, his con or his concubine, whatever. Um, and both of them basically showed contempt for their birthright by being willing to give that up for short-term in Esau's case, food, and in Reuben's case, sex. Now we're going to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Again, that's 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, These are the descendants of Reuben. It says, The oldest son of Israel. Now, Israel was the name that God gave to Jacob. So it says here that the oldest son of Israel, or Jacob, was Reuben. But since he dishonored his father by sleeping with one of his father's concubines, his birthright was given to the sons of his brother Joseph. So Jacob takes... Reuben's birthright away because of the dishonor that he brought to his father and gives them to Joseph's sons. For this, re for this reason, 1 Chronicles chapter 5 says, verse 1, for this reason Reuben is not listed in the genealogical records as the firstborn son. So if you were to do something so dishonorable that you would give up your birthright like Esau or like Reuben, it was so powerful to do that that you could actually lose your place in the genealogy. If you went to Ancestry.com, you wouldn't see Reuben listed in the genealogical records as a firstborn son. Now, I'm not, I'm, I know Ancestry.com doesn't have that, but if, if, if we have the biblical version of Ancestry.com, you would, you would not see Reuben listed as the firstborn son because of the dishonor that he brought to his father and the despising of his birthright, the same way that Esau despised the birthright that he should have gotten from Isaac, Jacob's father. The descendants of Judah became the most powerful tribe and provided a ruler for the nation. But the, birth, but the birthright belonged to Joseph, again because of what Reuben did. Neither Reuben nor Esau lived a holy life separated to God. And they paid the price for it long term because of their own short-sightedness and willing to give it up for their own godlessness and sinfulness. Now we're going to look at Exodus chapter 13 verse 2 and Exodus chapter 13 verses 11 and 15. So that's Exodus 13 2 and verses 11 through 15. And again, we see the importance of being the firstborn here because it says in Exodus 13, 2, Dedicate to me, God says, God is speaking this, Yahweh. He says, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. 
So that again, that shows the value of being the firstborn, the oldest. Because every firstborn was to be of the Israelites was to be dedicated to God. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. So this is so valuable that it even applies to animals among the Israelites. That the firstborn would be dedicated to God. In Exodus 13, verses 11 through 15, then it says, this is, and this is God still, uh, it says here that this is what you must do when the Lord fulfills the promise he swore to you and to your ancestors. When he gives you the land where the Canaanites now live. So in other words, this is when they, when they go into the promised land. The land that was originally promised to Abraham. And now for about approximately 400 years after uh, Jacob and all that. Well, about 400 years after the Israelites go into Egypt which we haven't gotten to yet. We will later in Genesis. But about 400 years later, now, uh, he says, when, you, when, he gives you, when God gives you the land where the Canaanites now lived as the promised land, you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord. So that's, again, the qualification for the firstborn. It belonged to the, to the firstborn male of every human family and of any animal. The firstborn male was always specifically dedicated to God. But again, if you were the firstborn male, it wasn't a guarantee. You could sin away your birthright, as Esau did and as Reuben did. And it just shows, again, the great value of it when even the Lord is codifying this in the Mosaic Law. The importance of being the firstborn son. And it says, the firstborn sons and the firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat in his place. So the only way that a firstborn, male, a firstborn donkey could be bought back is by the sacrifice of another by presenting a lamb or a goat in its place it says but if you do not buy it back you must break its neck however you must buy back every firstborn son and in the future it says in verse 14 Exodus 13:14 and in the future your children will ask you what does all this mean then you will tell them with the power of his mighty hand the lord brought us out of egypt the place of our slavery. So, again, as we'll see as we get later into Genesis and Exodus, the Israelites travel to Egypt and they end up becoming slaves there for about 400 years. And so, in the future, when the children ask, what does this mean when they perform this ceremony annually? It says, with the power of this mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, so the Lord killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both people and animals. So, all the firstborn males among the Israelites were redeemed, for, were, were set apart for the Lord, and when Pharaoh mistreated them, refused to let them go, because they were set apart for the Lord, the Lord took it out on Pharaoh's firstborn son and animals. 
So Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. So the Lord killed all, killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt. This and this this was something the Lord did. Well, God wouldn't do that. God's too loving. Well, God did it. It's right there, Exodus thirteen fifteen. Both people and animals. That is why I now sacrifice all the firstborn males to the Lord, except that the firstborn sons are always bought back. Okay, now we're going to look at Second Chronicles. We're going to look at firstborn in Second Chronicles chapter twenty-one. Verses 1 through 3. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. And this passage is about Jehoram ruling in Judah. And it says here, it says here, When Jehoshaphat died, he was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. That would be Jerusalem. Then his son Jehoram became the next king. Jehoram's brothers, the other sons of Jehoshaphat, were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azra. Man, this name is fun. Azariahu, Michael. I kind of like that name compared to Azariahu, and Shephatiah. Whew, boy. All these sons were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The author of Chronicles sees Judah as representative of the true Israel. Their father had given each of them valuable gifts of gold, silver, gold, and costly items, and also some of Judah's fortified towns. However, he designated Jehoram as the next king because he was the oldest. So what does that tell you? Jehoram, as the oldest, was the next in line to become king as part of the benefit of being the firstborn. The oldest son is kind of basically where you rank in the family, as it were. Now we're going to look at Psalm chapter 70 or psalm 78 and verse 51 psalm 78 and verse 51 there's something very interesting about this teaching of the firstborn in relation to israel and the church i think we'll get into that later probably in psalm 78:51, it says he killed the oldest son in each Egyptian family. And this is what the Lord did to deliver the Israelites and the, the firstborn among them from slavery in Egypt. He took the whole nation out. But the firstborn is of special importance here because it says that the Lord killed the oldest son in each Egyptian family. Killed the firstborn. Again, you're going you're gonna to keep my nation, my chosen nation, and all of its firstborn captive and slaves and mistreat them I'm going to show you who's really boss of this universe and he killed the firstborn the oldest son in each Egyptian family the flower of youth throughout the land of Egypt which is also called the land of Egypt in Hebrew is called the tents of Ham and that's because the Egyptian nation was descended from Noah's son Ham remember he was the one that was cursed not he, not he himself, not Ham, but Ham's descendants were living under the curse from 
the post-flood incident between Noah and his children that we read about earlier in Genesis. Okay, now we're going to look at Deuteronomy. So we're going to go backwards for a minute. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. In Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, says, Suppose a man has two wives, but he loves one and not the other, which is kind of what happened with uh, Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, as we'll see later in Genesis. But suppose a man has two wives, but he loves one and not the other, and both have given him sons. And suppose the firstborn son is the son of the wife he does not love. So both wives, we have a man here who has two wives, and both of them have given him children. But the firstborn son that the man has comes from the wife he doesn't love. He says, when the man divides his inheritance, he may not give the larger inheritance to his younger son, the son of the wife he loves, as if he were the firstborn son. So let's say you have two wives, you love one, you don't love the other, but both of them give you children, and the oldest, the firstborn, comes from the one that you don't love. You can't show favoritism to the sons of the wife you love just because you love her, or just because you might love even those children more because of the product of being the product of the, the marital union of the wife that you love. The firstborn oldest son title is so valuable that it supersedes even the father's wishes. It says that the father in this case must recognize the rights of his oldest son, the son of the wife he does not love, by giving him a double portion. He is the first son of his father's virility and the rights of the firstborn belong to him. So what we've learned so far about the rights of the firstborn is that not even the father can take away the rights of the firstborn son. They are so valuable that they it even applies in the animal kingdom among the animals of the firstborn male child, the oldest son. And also the only one who can give it up. The only, it's irrevocable except for the oldest son himself surrendering that birthright by his own choice, by his own sin or his own choice. In Esau's case, he was willing to give it up for the smallest of things like a, just one meal of bread and bean soup. And in the other case, Esau, or excuse me, um, uh, Reuben was willing to give up his rights as a firstborn by bringing dishonor to his father Jacob by sleeping with one of Jacob's concubines. So the son we've seen so far, the son himself, the firstborn son, is the only one who has the ability to cast that away, saying it's worthless to me, showing their own godlessness in the process. But only the son can do that. Not even the father, out of preference for the one that he may like more than the other or whatever, not even the father can take away the rights of the firstborn son. Now we're going to look at Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Again, that's Exodus chapter 4, 
verses 22 and 23. And this one's going to be especially important when we start looking at the relationship between Israel and the church and the relationship of God and Jesus and all that to both. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, it says, Then you will tell him, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel, the nation of Israel, is God's firstborn son. So that means Israel, the nation of Israel. We're talking about literal, physical Israel. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people. They are God's firstborn son. Therefore, they get the double portion, the inheritance of that relationship. Some have said, you know, I've even heard this recently. Someone that was, uh, we were having a discussion, and she was like, it doesn't seem fair that, you know, Israel was, was chosen for all this, and the Gentiles were pretty much left out in the cold. Well, that's... You can say it's not fair, or you can think what you want about it, but God even treats He even treats His firstborn son that way. We have Israel, and then we have the church. But it says here in Exodus chapter 4, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. So God's talking to the Pharaoh of Egypt who has enslaved the Israelites or continued their enslavement and refuses to let them go so they can worship God. And so God says, you know, this is my firstborn. So he's taking this personally. He's again showing the value of that birthright, that first son, that that firstborn male son birthright by saying the nation of Israel, the entire nation is my firstborn. And I commanded you to let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn sons. So see how this is all coming back into focus now. God is saying, you know, Israel is my firstborn. I want them to worship me. I want that relationship with my firstborn. You are hindering that. And because you are hindering that, now I'm going to take it out on your firstborn because I'm God. I created all life. I can take any life away that I want. And he's going to do that to Pharaoh's firstborn son is what God warns Pharaoh through Moses here in Exodus chapter 4 verses 22 and 23. Now we're going to move on over into the New Testament for four other verses on this topic. And we're first going to look at Hebrews. We're going back to Hebrews. We've spent a lot of time in Hebrews today. This is Hebrews chapter 1 Verses 5 through 8. Now, remember, uh, gentlemen, uh, in a marriage, the husband always makes the coffee because the Bible says Hebrews. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, and it says here, this is important too, don't miss this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, the New Living Translation, it says, For God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. So he says here, Paul writes, God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. He, God never said to any angel, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God never said that to any angel. Or I can also read in the Hebrew, today I reveal you as my son. 
So you are my son. Today I reveal you as my son. God never said that to any angel, but he did reveal Jesus as his son. And he became his father when Jesus took on human flesh. He, Jesus existed eternally, but Jesus, God the Father becomes Jesus, you know, or Jesus becomes the Son of the Father at that miraculous uh, conception when Mary gets pregnant. And God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. It goes back to 2 Samuel 7.14. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. So Jesus has all the rights to everything God has as the firstborn son, or as God called him in John 3.16, my only begotten son. So he's the firstborn. He's the oldest son because he's God's only begotten son. So he gets all the rights and privileges of the firstborn to God. And when he brought his supreme son into the world, or firstborn son, God said, Let all of God's angels worship him. So God, again, this is the importance of the firstborn. God's own firstborn, his only begotten son, he considers of such importance that even of such importance that God told the angels in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, verse forty-three, that they said, "Let all of God's angels worship Him." And regarding the angels, God says, "He sends His angels like the four winds, His servants like the flames of fire." And that's Psalm 104, verse 4. It's the Greek version of Psalm 104, verse 4. So he says that to his angels. His angels are his servants. But to his son, God says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Now notice this. This is the Father speaking to the Son. And the Father speaking to the Son, Jesus, the Father calls Jesus God. God the Father, Yahweh, calls Jesus his son, God. That is one of the most powerful references to the Trinity you will see outside of like the baptism thing when it talks about the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When, except for those passages where it talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one. This passage here, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 it says, Your throne, O God, and this is God, the Father, talking to Jesus. Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. Man, there's so much there in that one little passage. And now we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Again, that's Colossians chapter 1. Well, if I can get it right. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And here it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to, God, Yahweh, God the Father, the one that we've been reading about is invisible. But if you want to see him, you look at Christ, who was God in human flesh. He came to earth. His words and deeds are recorded in the four Gospels. 
And it's also other places in the New Testament. He's further revealed in the book of Revelation. But you look at everything that the New Testament, and well, the whole Bible, but especially the New Testament, says about Jesus and what was prophesied about him in the Old Testament, and there you will see what the invisible God really looks like. Because he, he and Christ are one and the same. It says in Colossians, Paul writes, that Jesus existed before anything was created. So before Genesis 1-1, when God said, in the beginning, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, well, in the beginning before God created the, the heavens and the earth, Jesus existed according to Colossians 1.15. Jesus existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. In, he, in Greek, it says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. If we go over, I think, if we go to the New International Version here, it will say that. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the NIV says. So we notice what the importance of the firstborn here again. The absolute tremendous value of that is because Jesus is considered the firstborn all over all creation. He is the supreme. It says, for in him all things were created. All things were created in Jesus. Verse 16 says in the NIV, it says, For through, it says in verse 16 in the New Living Translation, For through Jesus, God created everything. Or to, we could say, For through Jesus, Yahweh created everything. God created everything. Remember in Genesis 1 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And now we see in Colossians 1 16 how God created the heavens and the earth. He created them through Jesus. So Jesus was active in the creation process. God the Father created everything through Jesus in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made, Jesus made the things that we, we can see. So when you look around, you look around you right now, Jesus made every, all the materials by which everything that you see is made. And Jesus also made the things that you can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. So Jesus made everything in the physical realm that you can see, or at least everything that it's made up of. You know, uh, Jesus didn't build this apartment complex by his own hands, but all the materials that, uh, all the matter and stuff that from which it comes, came from him. He made the things we can see. He made the things we can't see. He's all, he made everything that's in the, the spiritual realm that we can't see with our natural eyes. Everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. So Jesus is the source of everything and it's all for him, including people. Verse 17 Jesus existed before anything else. And it is Jesus that holds all creation together. So Jesus is what holds all this together. If you want to know what's keeping the universe together, what keeps reality together, what makes reality reality, 
What makes reality a true, objective, real thing that is not subjective? It is Jesus that holds it all together. If it wasn't for him, there would literally be nothing because he's the one that's holding it all together. Christ is also the head of the church, and the church is made up of all people throughout all time from, from excuse me, not through all time, but the church is made up of all people from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit first came on the apostles and started indwelling them, to the present day and all the way up to the rapture in the future. Everybody from Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost up through the future rapture of the church is part of the church. Uh, that would be people who are alive now that are believers, people who have died that are believers, and people who will be born after this that are believers up until the rapture. Everybody from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 through the rapture is the church. And it says that Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. So we are the body of Christ. That's why when you hear people talk about we're the body of Christ, that's what that means. He's the head of the church and we are his body. We are the hands and feet of Jesus doing on earth what he calls us to do through the Holy Spirit. And it says that Jesus is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, or the firstborn, it says in Colossians 1, the firstborn from the dead. So Jesus was the firstborn, the only begotten Son of God, the firstborn, and also the firstborn of all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. He was first um, the firstborn among the living. He is firstborn among the dead, meaning he is the firstborn. So he gets all the rights and privileges. So at the resurrection, whether I die first and am raptured later, or whether Jesus comes in my lifetime, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, so he gets the most privilege. We all and we all benefit basically from what he has done and everything. We are will be part of that family with him, but he is the firstborn. So he it's the reason for all that privilege he gets. And we see that even more when we get to Revelation chapter one and verse five. I just started a Revelation study. Um that started off being just with me and some of the host team that I that I host with on Saturday nights for Life Church, but we're expanding that now to invite other people. I was told I could invite others, and one person's already accepted. So if there's anybody else that wants to join this uh, Skype call, it'll be Sunday nights at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. And we're going to be going. Th we're going through the Book of Revelation. We just started this past Sunday, and we're not even through the introduction yet. We went for an hour, and we didn't even make it out of the introduction questions that I came up with. And I'm designing this one entirely on my own. The Genesis study is from Precept Ministries. The Revelation study I'm completely designing all completely on my own. So, if, but if you want to join me for that. Uh, and the rest of us as well. Right now there's a total of five of us. If you want to join, let me know. Send me an email, wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that's wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. You can send me an email, request the link for the Skype call. We're going to be doing this on Sunday nights, and we're going through the book of Revelation, and you are welcome to join us. Uh, again, I was given permission from my host team leader to invite anybody that I wanted 
So that's what we're going to do. Um, the Revelation of 1-5 now is what we're going to be reading. I don't know if we'll get to 1-5 this Sunday or not, but we'll try. It says, Revelation 1-5, And from Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness to these things. The first to rise from the dead, or the firstborn from the dead, it says in Greek, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. Remember the king that was given the rulership in the Old Testament passage that we read because he was the firstborn son. Jesus is given the keys to the kingdom, if you will, as the ruler of all the kings of the world because he is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn before the world began and the firstborn from the dead. All glory to Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. And now the rest of this passage, again this is Revelation chapter 1 and uh, verse 5. Alright, so now we're gonna, the last one we're going to look at is Romans. It's Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, Romans 8, 29, and it says here, For God knew his people in advance. Now again, does that mean that God treats us like robots and he chooses in advance who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? And we're just waiting to find out who. No, that is not a biblical doctrine. It is not even close to true or accurate. Romans 8, 29, For God knew his people in advance. He knew which ones would choose him and he chose the ones that would choose him to become like his son. What again? What? Pre, it's not to say that predestination is not a biblical doctrine. It is. It's just that how it's taught is often wrong. Predestination is not what God. God choosing. Okay, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to go to hell. Your entire life has been planned out, and you have no say in it. It's all been predestined. That's not what this is. God knew in advance. Who his people would be and he predestined or chose us to become like his son that's what was predestined is that those who would choose him those that would choose to be his people would be would become like his son so that's what God determined ahead of time so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters so Jesus is the firstborn and as such he is the one that will that receives the inheritance, the double portion, the all the benefits and the rights of the firstborn. Jesus receives that. We then, who become God's people, will become like his son, but we won't be the firstborn. But Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, meaning all of us who receive God the Father. Basically, that God adopts. When you and I receive Jesus, we are adopted as God's children. Jesus is the firstborn, and we are adopted as his children. Yeah, I mean, that... I don't know what else to say to that. That's just, that's, that, that's uh, amazing to stop and think about.
And so as we finish up today, um, I mean, did you ever dream that there was so much in these few verses that give the account of the birth of Jacob and Esau? I mean, this is just one little passage that we, Genesis 25, 19 through 34, we've been on this for three episodes now at least. And there's so much packed into this one little passage. And especially when you tie it to other places in the Bible that talks about the right of the firstborn, the birthright that Esau despised, that Reuben despised, by trading it for short-term pleasures in this life or short-term perceived needs in this life. So it really helps to slow down and observe the text and to give our Father an opportunity to speak to us by His Holy Spirit. And so I want to take this time again to thank you for joining me in this study. And um, so as we finish now, I just want to pray with you guys. And I, um, let's go ahead and do that. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this study. I thank you for everyone who's taken the time to listen. I pray that you would grow this audience. I pray that its influence would reach farther. I pray that you would use it to grow and expand your kingdom, to bring people into it, and to draw them closer to you as a result of the Bible study that we do. In this podcast, I ask that if anyone has yet is listening to this that has yet to receive the adoption as children, the adoption as your children that you offer to all people, anyone. We, we are all your creatures, but we are not your children until we receive Jesus as Savior. And so if there's anyone listening to this, who has never received Jesus as Savior, or who isn't sure that if they died right now that they would die as one of your children and be, become part of your eternal kingdom in heaven. I pray that they would take that opportunity right now to receive that adoption as your children by calling on the name of your son, by confessing their sins and trusting in Jesus alone, by faith, by faith alone, and by your grace, for the forgiveness of those sins. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thank you everyone for listening to this podcast. Uh, please share it on... Uh, Facebook, on Twitter, on Parlor, on MeWe, on Gab, on any other place that you're on. If I'm not mentioning anywhere else, share it there too. Share it in your email. Uh, again, you can email me, contact me, let me know what you think of this podcast. Is there anything I could do better? Is there anything you really like that you want me to keep doing? Um, anything at all. Uh, if you have a question or a comment about anything we've talked about in this episode or any previous one, uh, let me know. 
And um, again, you can contact me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that's all one word. It's wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. So this is Steve Johnson for the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. Speeding through life at the breakneck speed of 60 seconds per minute. And I look forward to being with you all again. Hopefully tomorrow. We'll see. But I'm shooting for tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. Thank you very much. God bless. And bye for now.